0: Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively.
1: Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale.
0: Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies
1: say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. In between
0: so come on and join the fun the curtain opens in three two one stories and scandal water it's where you need to be
1: stories and scandal water let's pour you a cup of tea. Hi, Ashley Hello Candy good to be recording again. It is. And I'm very excited about our topic today. Oh my gosh, me too. Yeah. For our listeners, this is one that Ashley and I have discussed. We both know what we're doing. In fact, we mm-hmm. have both done quite a bit of preparation, yes. and I think this one's going to be a fun episode that everybody's going to be able to relate to.
0: I think it's safe to say that you have done more preparation than me, but I still <laughs> had a good
1: time doing my preparation. Awesome. Well, then let's start by sharing a little bit of our background. Okay. The topic is
0: done. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh Can you guess just with two notes? Can you guess what it is? I bet you all know. I bet they can.
1: (laughs) As you probably guessed, the topic today is Jaws, which, by the way, is the first ever summer blockbuster. We'll come back to that again later. So, our theme this month is Jaws and Jurassic, Steven Spielberg's summer blockbusters. And what we've decided to do, because this is such a big episode, is we've actually turned it into a two parter. So, actually, what I wonder is what are some of your memories? From your very first time Watching Jaws
0: Oh okay So my very first time Watching it Back in When I was a teenager I had a list of movies That I I was morbid Okay I had a list of movies That I was like I want to see this Before I die Oh my and, gosh I know I said <laughs> it was morbid a Yes I did I w- I've been very aware Of mortality For a very long time <laughs> And so I Made a list of stuff I wanted to see And that was on the list Okay I recorded it off Turner Classic Movies I'm sure Robert Osborne Did an mm. intro for it and I watched it and I don't remember what I thought of it other than you know the iconic stuff but on my rewatch last night which I think is the first time I've rewatched it since I was a teenager I loved it but I know we'll get to that later Yeah. so
1: what's your memory of it? I remember thinking reflectively as an older person looking back that I was way too young to have seen it (laughs) that it terrified me I remember that I had to cover my eyes Mm. when I saw that opening scene with the girl yes. in the water yes. and how violent yes the attack was her body just being dragged yes. back and forth that absolutely just set me aback I mean yes. I that got me yes. and so I remember also you you started with a little bit of you know the that the theme song that was powerful to me because I remember that even looking down closing my eyes that music would tear me up because mm-hmm. the suspense it built even without watching the screen was just unbelievable.
0: It's the first, I made a note when I was re-watching it last night, the first thing that you hear, it is a black screen and you hear those notes. That is our introduction to this film and it is it is perfect. Yeah. I'm probably thinking, saying, going back to why I watched it, I was also on this huge Steven Spielberg kick mm, yeah. because he was a filmmaker that I admired and I wanted to see all of his works and I mm-hmm. knew that he had kind of struggled when he was an early filmmaker and so I was like, ooh, somebody that struggled. I want to know how they struggled. So right. that was another reason to watch it.
1: I asked Kirk about some of his memories, and he also was terrified by Jaws. Although, unlike me, he said it never made him afraid of the water. I do recall being afraid of the ocean. A hundred percent. Yeah. I did not actually get to see the ocean for the first time until I was 18, mm. but I wasn't even that devastated because I always thought, mm-hmm. when I see it, I'm going to be afraid to get in. Oh, yeah.
0: No, I won't get in. Yeah. No. And one time when we went to the ocean, there was some fishermen, and there was a shark. I mean, a little shark. It wasn't a scary shark, mm-hmm. but it was a little one caught off, and they pulled it in I was like, yeah, mm, no, I'm good. Ankle deep. That's all I need. <laughs> yep. Ankle deep. Just get my feet wet. That's, that's about all I need forever. This
1: is wonderful I love this is this. Well, what Kirk did share was a standout observation for him was that he remembered after seeing it, they ended up back at the house with several of his family members. He had a lot of aunts and uncles mm-hmm. and he remembers the adults sitting around talking about the movie, like even a day or two later. Yeah. And it registered with him how unusual that was because most of the time it was like, see the movie. And, and then, you know, mm-hmm. your entertainment's over and it, it's out of your mind. Mm-hmm. And he said they kept talking about it. It's because the characters were so good. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a great production that, that it, it has maintained relevance all this time because it's a show that came out in 1975. Right. But as I was starting to research, here's what I found out, Ashley. Mm. So just this past February, a show called The Shark is Broken closed. It was written, I should say co-written, by Ian Shaw, who <gasps> was the son of Robert Shaw the man who played Quint in the movie I just got goosebumps right and the co-writer was Joseph Nixon who is related to Nixon oh I can't remember how. It might be a son as well, but I don't hold me to that. Okay. But these two fellows wrote this play called The Shark is Broken. It actually premiered at the 2019 Edinburgh Fringe and sold out. It was supposed to be brilliantly funny is, is the mm. phrase that they, that they used. So they brought it back and it ran from October 2021 through mid-February of 2022 at the Ambassador's Theater in London's West End and had rave reviews. Oh, I want to see this. Ian actually portrayed his dad <sighs> in the show. Mm-hmm. And so here's what it was about. They show these... Three men stuck on a boat. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be Robert Shaw stuck with Richard Dreyfus, played by Liam Murray Scott, and Roy Scheider, who was played by Dimitri Gorostsas, as the tensions waxed and waned. The play's website offered this little teaser. Martha's Vineyard, 1974. Shooting on Jaws mm-hmm. has stalled. The film's lead actors, Robert Shaw, Roy Scheider, and Richard Dreyfus, are stuck on a boat at the mercy of foul weather and a faulty mechanical coaster are awash with alcohol and ambition three hammered sharks <laughs> start to bare their teeth I love it How clever is that I love it Well so still relevant mm. all this time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just one little quick side note just because it's interesting Ian Shaw in helping to write this I'm sure called on a lot of resources as well but yeah. he was able to pull from his own background knowledge I'm sure his dad although we should we should qualify that his dad died when he was very young but mm. he probably heard some of Those memories from his father, I'm sure. Yeah. And he actually got to visit the set of Jaws when he was five years old. Oh, wow. So he, he had a little bit of his own, you know, his own memory there that he could call from.
0: That's very cool. Yeah. Although I don't remember hardly anything when I was five. Do you remember anything when you were five? Well, not a lot. I but always so, remember traumatic stuff. Like I got put in the corner on my first day of kindergarten. That's what I remember. Oh, yeah. Well, that would be that something would you would remember. And it was because the girl was talking to me. It was during don't talk time. And so she asked me a question. I answered it. I remember that. of it. <laughs> I remember.
1: It's because it was unfair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she asked me about a pin I was wearing. I still recall that. That's Isn't my that memory. Funny? Yeah.
1: I think if I got to visit the set of Jaws in my I would, remember window, that. I would probably remember that as well. That would stick out. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Well, here's another reason mm-hmm. why it is still relevant today. Or I should say, here's other evidence mm-hmm. that it is still relevant today. There is a new musical called Bruce that is going to be coming out in just a few weeks. Stop have it. you heard of this? No, I have not. Based on the 1975 memoir, The Jaws Log written by Carl Gottlieb who you guys are going to hear a lot more about in this episode because he was the Mm co-screenwriter of Jaws and actually let's just do a little quick pause here. Almost all the resources the sources that we used pulled things from this 1975 memoir, The Jaws Log so huge shout out in addition to interviews with Carl that we got to listen to on the podcast Inside Mm -hmm. Jaws and other interviews that he did in, in magazines. The point is this man is a a huge source. He's a for treasure. a lot of the memories. Yeah. yeah. So we just want to make sure we say that Did out you know front. he's in the movie too? I did. Yeah. I saw that. So anyway, this, this musical, Bruce, if they are still on track, there was a promo article that was published just a few weeks ago. It said that the play will begin previewing at Seattle Reps Bagley Wright Theater on May 27th, 2022, with an opening night set for June 1st, and the engagement will run through June 26th of 2022.
0: That's like in a few days.
1: Uh-huh. Oh I mean, gosh. it's coming up by the this airs, yeah, it will It'll be, be running. Oh. Yeah. So here's what it says again from that same article that was promoting the play. Bruce tells the story of a virtually unknown 26 year old director named Steven Spielberg, who in 1974 sets out to film an adaptation of the best selling novel Jaws. Here's the synopsis that they give for the musical. While invading a sleeping fishing island off Cape Cod to shoot on the open ocean, he faced several challenges, including weather, water, hostile locals, an exploding budget. Endless delays and a highly dysfunctional mechanical star mm-hmm. named Bruce mm-hmm. to bring his vision to life in what proved to be one of the biggest success stories in film history. Isn't
0: that amazing? I love all these stories that are telling the story of the story because it is it is so amazing that it got made. Yeah, and I don't know if I'll remember to say this later, but one of the I started reading the IMDb trivia last night. There's like 300 pieces of trivia. I didn't make it through. I fell asleep. I'm sorry. <laughs> but did you know that the shark in Finding Nemo, Bruce is named for I didn't know that either. I I love that. I know I know. And that Bruce was named for Spielberg's lawyer. I did know that one. I love
1: it. (laughs) How clever. Obviously, this production that aired in 1975 and almost didn't make it because of Mm -hmm. all the problems that it faced, not only set records at the time, but we're still having productions and and conversations about it all these years later. Mm -hmm. So we are super excited for this episode around Jaws and we are ready to jump in so here we go jump in you said jump in make a splash we're
0: ready to make a splash
1: (laughs) love it so for those of you who may not know Jaws was set in the fictional beach town of Amity and of course was based on the best-selling novel called Jaws that was released in 1973 it was written by Peter Benchley Mm -hmm. the film starred Roy Scheider as police chief Martin Brody Richard Dreyfuss as marine biologist Matt Hooper and as we've already mentioned, Robert Shaw was the grizzled fisherman named Quinn. Now we're going to go into them a little bit more later. We're going to have a little section where we talk about the cast, but just to kind of continue this summary, I just did a quick little Google search and here's what popped up as a nice little synopsis for the film. When a young woman is killed by a shark while skinny dipping near the new England tourist town of Amity Island, police chief Martin Brody wants to close the beaches, but mayor Larry Vaughn overrules him fearing that the loss of tourist revenue will cripple the town. Oceanographer Matt Hooper and grizzled, Ship Captain Quint offer to help Brody capture the killer beast and the trio engage in an epic battle of man versus nature.
0: Yeah, that's good. Grizzled, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, offer to help, mm, he wants to be paid $10,000. <laughs> no, that's not offering to help.
1: <laughs> good point. Yeah. Matt offers to help. Hooper offers to help. Quint is like, you're going to pay me. That's so true. But, he, but once he's on that mission, yeah. it's not about the money. No, no, not anymore. It, it has mm-hmm. become like this person... It makes me think of like Moby Dick yes, or something. It does. Yes. Yeah. So Steven Spielberg was trying to make it big at this time. He was not the big name director. He had put out a couple of productions. The most recent one was called Duel. And it had received some really nice critical reviews, mm-hmm. but did super poorly in the box office. Hadn't he also done Sugarland Express by that time? I believe so. Yeah,
0: with Goldie yeah. Hawn. And it had, not, right. it had not done Also
1: well. disappointing for mm-hmm. what he wanted. So even though he was a little concerned about being typecast, there was a quote where he said, who wants to be known as a shark and truck director? <laughs> so even though he had some concerns, he thought that taking on Jaws, this movie would be a good opportunity to try to prove his skills as a director. And of course, the book was a bestseller. So there was potential here. He did see the potential and he decided to take this on. Now, the production team wanted the film to be made in a tank. I mean, the thing that people <laughs> normally do, film it in a tank in Hollywood. <laughs> Steven insisted, no. He wanted it on the ocean. He wanted the authenticity. He thought that would make a difference. It does. So he signed on agreeing that this would be an ocean production. It was supposed to be a 55-day shoot and they decided to do it at Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts because they needed a summer beach resort town that had a sheltered bay, manageable tides, and shallow waters because Mm. all of that was going to help with the filming. Right. Now, later, Steven Spielberg reflected that he had absolutely no idea how many problems he was going to encounter and how much sleep he was going to lose. Mm -hmm. Not only was he stressed out over making this movie, but he was worried like every day that he was going to get fired and that he was ruining his career and his chances to ever make it big as a director. Yeah. In fact, Ashley and I both listened to the podcast Inside Jaws. I know yes. that Mark so, Ramsey, Carl Gottlieb, this man who was given credit as one of the co-writers of the screenplay, he shared that Stephen found comfort in the smell of celery. Do you remember this <laughs> part?
0: That he would fall asleep. He would put celery stalks in his pillowcase because it would help soothe him to sleep. Right. Because and was, I loved like, how he would so much. G- sleep. He would get up every day and vomit. And I'm like, I can identify with this man's anxiety. But this
1: poor guy, can you imagine? Like, we look at him and go, wow, this movie made him and what Mm -hmm. a great opportunity. And this poor little 26-year-old guy is thinking, this is it. I'm blowing it. I'm never going to succeed and and I'm going to be blackballed forever, probably.
0: And I think that's why this has got such a broad appeal, because not only is it a great film, but the behind the scenes is such an underdog Mm -hmm. story that it makes people like myself, who continually face quote-unquote financial failures you know you have all of this investment and you think oh when is it gonna actually break through it's like it may happen or it may not but it's so encouraging to know even these people these academy award mm-hmm. revered people all had this kind of start yeah or at yeah. least he did I don't know if they all did but he did
1: and it's also reassuring we're going to come back to this later in terms of the characters the fact that they were real and they had mm-hmm. their flaws mm-hmm. you know we take people like Steven Spielberg and we make them Revere. iconic in our mm-hmm. mind and you know they seem perfect and to, to hear about the anxiety and the self-doubts that he experienced that you know that really it makes humanizes, him more human. yeah, humanizes him too Yeah.
0: so before we I know you've got some more points to make but before we move on I wanted to point out that Peter Benchley mm-hmm. the one that wrote the novel Jaws was a pretty had a pretty famous family himself his dad was Nathaniel Benchley who was a novelist and his grandfather Robert Benchley was a humorist that was Associated with New Yorker magazine, and he hung out at the Algonquin Roundtable with Dorothy Parker and that lot. Very so cool. Pretty cool stock right there.
1: Yeah, I did not run across that. I remember seeing something about Peter Benchley having that esteemed writing background himself. I believe he quit his job writing for, I want to say, President Johnson mm. in order to write that novel. So, that was in that podcast. Yeah. So Peter Benchley had some chops behind him. Yes, he did. Yeah. Well, I thought it would be fun since it's such a a big thing. I mean, we just talked about two different productions that are current that are really kind of focused around the dysfunction and the uh, issues, the challenges that Steven Spielberg and his cast and crew faced in the making of this movie. So I thought, well, why not organize our podcast episode around that? So we're going to talk about three problems okay. that they had to face in the making of Jaws and use that to kind of guide us through this. Okay. So the first problem was simply the technical difficulties or the filming challenges that they faced, many of which were because Steven Spielberg had insisted they were going to do this on the ocean. That was a huge part of it. Yeah. If they'd done this in a tank in Hollywood, probably a lot of these problems wouldn't have reared their ugly heads. Well, but then would we be talking about this movie? We would not. I yep. can guarantee it. Yeah. But one of the things which is super fun that Ashley and I have already alluded to was the fact that in order to make Jaws scary, to make it as effective and suspenseful as Steven Spielberg wanted it to be they needed these sharks that looked realistic. Mm-hmm. This They needed to have basically their their jaws, which took not one mechanical shark, but actually three mm-hmm. to achieve. And one can only go left. One could only go right. <laughs> right. And then one could
0: only go up and down or something like that. I don't remember the third one.
1: I don't remember exactly, although it talked about, it's funny, different articles would describe it different ways. One article said it was almost like it was on the arm of a crane so that it could go in a straight line for like 50 feet. So I think that Wanted movement. Okay. But another article said that the models were towed by submerged, they use the term sleds, or guided by hidden scuba divers. So I think they, yeah, as you said, they needed the different angles, but they also needed to be able to show kind of the whole fish as it was moving. Uh And so it took three different models to achieve that. Uh They collectively called them Bruce. Yeah. So one of my favorite parts
0: is when in the podcast, of course, this is fictionalized. I don't know if this. This is true, but Mark Ramsey's version of it is where Stephen asked the guy, "And did you when you tested him in the water? How did it go?" And he's like, uh, "Great, <laughs> because they forgot to they test it in even, the water. Nope, didn't even think about it." And again, that is so identifiable. You do this stuff, and you're like, "Oh, and when you tested it, like, uh, yeah, it was it was awesome. It just worked perfectly." <laughs> can't wait like, to do Can't this. wait to do it. Your fingers are crossed behind your back. <sighs>
1: Well, and it's a shame they didn't test it because yeah. boy, did they have problems once <laughs> they put so those expensive. things in the water. Oh yeah, it was awful. <laughs> they they sank. Yeah. You had the problem of literally they just sank. Yeah. And then when they figured out how to get them up and to try to make them work, they just had so many malfunctions. And by the way, if you want to learn more, we recommend the podcast really recommend Inside it. Jaws. It's very yes. good. But the Mark way Ramsey it, Media, yeah, definitely. Very good. But the way they tell it in the podcast, you get that sense of it was just like a daily thing. <laughs> well, not working today. Okay. What are we going to do instead? Yes. Um, so it was a huge ordeal trying to get these sharks to function. But we're going to talk about later how that ended up in many ways being a helpful thing. But in this case, it, it definitely caused the problem of delaying their filming schedule. Remember, they were approved for fifty five days. They ended up taking 159 days to film because of all these different issues. The crew members, some of them, started calling the film flaws. Steven Spielberg sometimes started calling the special effects team the special defects department. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. So these sharks not working caused not just the problems, you know, and what are we going to do today and how do we fix these sharks? But it was a lot of money.
0: Yeah, it is. It was a
1: lot of time. You have people committed for 55 days and you're like, oh, surprise, we're going to make it 159. You've got problems. Yeah.
0: We don't know when we're going home.
1: Right. So the sharks, one technical issue, but they had. Other problems as well. This is something that they mentioned again in the podcast. At one point, the boat that they were on, the orca, sank unexpectedly during filming. Oh, that's when the sound people, like, forget the actors, save the sound equipment, <laughs> yeah. save the actors. I love it. But it did. It, it, their cameras got soaked. They oh, thought gosh. they were going to lose all of the footage. This is disturbing because yeah. this is a lot of work. This is a lot of time. This yes, is a lot is. of money. Yes. So they had to spend money. They Flew the film to a lab in New York and they were able to save it. But this is the kind of thing they were dealing with just these unexpected things that you would never predict. Mm-hmm another unexpected issue. The scene where they think they've caught Jaws. These local fishermen, they went out there, they set out to find the shark. <laughs> the and, tiger shark. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so they find the shark and they're all convinced that they found it. And so, of course, for the filming, they needed a shark. Yeah. They need a real shark. Yes. So do you remember what happened?
0: Well, I remember, again, I'm going from the podcast. I remember that they couldn't find one locally. They had mm-hmm. to go in and, and they hired these people to go catch a fish and they caught it and they thought well, we're just going to put it on the plane and put it on ice and fly it over here. And, and apparently you can't check a shark onto American <laughs> Airlines or Delta. They won't let you do that. So they had to charter a plane, go get this shark. And then by the time that shark ended up back on the film set, he was so rank that yes. he stank to high heaven. Yes. And and then one of the trivia on IMDb said that his intestines had all like settled down by his mouth. So even more stink mm-hmm. was going on. Yes. And there, in one of the shots, because I knew this, there was a fly that landed on that. Shark, like in the film, I'm like,
1: ooh, he was disgusting. And there's a
0: fly already like yum yum. (laughs) So I thought that was so gross. He smelled so bad. Yeah.
1: Think about if you were like an extra. I mean Yeah, Yeah, I need you to like stand here by the shark for like eight hours a day in the hot sun. (laughs) But yes, you you nailed it. You have a great memory. They said not only was that shark decomposing and smelling bad, but I remember they talked about how they would have to paint and touch it up all the time. Because because it was literally decomposing. Decomposing. Yeah, it was awful. Another challenge. Now, this would seem minor, I'm sure, to the film crew, but if you were one of the actors, this would be an issue. They experienced fatigue and sunburns and seasickness because they were doing so much out on on the ocean, literally. That's one
0: thing that I noticed with the actors is I expected them to look a whole lot more sunburned than Mm -hmm. they did. So
1: they must have really been protecting the actors. Mm -hmm. But you could see it. Like, once I thought about it, there were different parts where I was like, oh, it's kind of showing on. Mm -hmm. like especially Roy Scheider I think is who I noticed it with the most now Steven Spielberg had a great quote that I loved kind of reflecting on all of these issues and challenges here's what he said many years later I was naive about the ocean basically I was pretty naive about mother nature and the hubris of a filmmaker who thinks he Mm -hmm. can conquer the elements was foolhardy I was too young to know I was being foolhardy when I demanded that we shoot the film in the Atlantic Ocean and not in a North Hollywood tank but had I to do it all over again I would have gone back to the sea because it was the only way for the audience to feel that these three men were cast adrift with a great white shark hunting them.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. I agree with him. Yeah. It, I think knowing what he knows now, he would still go back and redo it because it made the film. It you just really can tell did. when it's in a tank. Absolutely. You can just tell.
1: Especially back in that day. Yeah. I mean, the setting was half the story. It was a character. Know? Yeah, you it really the wind,
0: you cannot seeing the wind, that was one of the things I I was actually very impressed with because having worked with sound Mm -hmm. and sound is such a pill. Yeah, I saw that wind whipping and I thought, how did they get such clear dialogue? Or did they go back and ADR uh, all of this dialogue to make it sound so good? Either way, that's really good. Mm -hmm. But you can't fake ocean breezes. Right. You know when their hair is blowing like that, you know they are in the authentic place.
1: Yeah. And it just gave you such a sense of their isolation. Uh And the danger that they were in. Even on the beach.
0: I'm talking when they were still on the beach and all the people around. Oh, good point. Yeah, they're all talking to each other. And you see that wind whipping their hair, you know, this Mm -hmm. is real. You
1: can't fake that. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, before we move on to the second problem they experienced while trying to make Jaws, why don't we take a quick break? Let's do it.
0: Hey everybody, it's Ashley, and can you believe that we are already planning for the end of our first season?
1: Oh my gosh, how exciting is that?
0: I know. So what Candy and I thought is for the final fifth tuesday in august which will be our last show before our one month break we come back in october we thought we would take some questions from our audience we'll do some wrap up on Mm -hmm. some of the episodes if you guys have any questions for us on our episodes or if you want to know anything about us just shoot us a message and we will put it in our final show to wrap up season one and if you want to send those in submit it to us by july 4th and you can send it to us either go to our website and submit there or you can message us on
1: facebook and we are back. So, a second challenge was finding the right cast because who they originally had in mind to do this film is not who they ended up with. In fact, Again, we'll go into more detail about this later, but even the way the characters played out in the book and their original versions of the screenplay are not who they turned out to be in the ultimate version of the film that we get to see nowadays. I think I remember
0: saying that when Spielberg first read the book that he was rooting for the shark. Everybody was so unlikable. Yeah. The movie
1: is very, very different from the book is what I've heard. Really? I haven't read the book. And I haven't either. So I found where Steven Spielberg had given an interview with Entertainment Weekly and he it's spoken a little bit in that interview about mm-hmm. some of his casting choices so I pulled a little bit from Stephen himself and then also from some other sources but regarding the leads, here are a few of the pieces of trivia that came up in that interview Stephen said quote "My first choice for Matt Hooper was always Richard Dreyfus. Oh, cool. He's the one person I got but what's interesting is in some of the other articles they mentioned other actors that actually were considered for that role of Hooper. He's the oceanographer that mm-hmm. comes in, kind of the young, wealthy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a, a little, you know, a c- little cocky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or how much money do you have? You mean me or the family? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like right. what? <laughs> yeah. So, one of the other actors that was specifically mentioned that they thought at one time was going to do that role was Jan Michael Vincent. At the time that this movie was being cast, he was kind of an it person in Hollywood. He was young. Mm-hmm. He was. Fit. he mm-hmm. was very kind of handsome model he's got a cool name yeah and so think about it he, he played more of the action hero types i can't think of any of his movies off the top of my head but not the dreyfus character you know mm-hmm. richard dreyfus was not the he just looks like a normal lead, guy you know action man right jan michael vincent would have been a different guy gotcha. he would have been a different character more
0: matinee idol yes okay
1: yes now for martin brody who ends up of course being played by roy scheider the studio was pushing charlton heston at first.
0: Yes, I recall this. Do you remember what they said about him? Well, they said because he had been in so much other stuff, Spielberg said, again, my paraphrasing from memory, is that he was, he had just saved the world in Airport 74,
1: 74. Airport
0: something, and he had saved the world in a couple other films and he said if we had him play it, then the audience is going to know that it's going to turn out okay. And he didn't want the audience to know for sure that this guy was going to win. It needed to be more of a surprise.
1: Yeah, I like that. In fact, Stephen was even concerned actually about Roy Scheider because Roy had just come out of the French Connection and apparently had done a really good job. And so Stephen wondered if even he was a little bit too much of a big name Mm. or a little too polished, Mm. but he did decide to give him a chance Mm -hmm. and was very impressed with him because this is something that came up a lot in the different sources was, and and Carl Gottlieb talked about this a lot. They really wanted the chief Brody to be the everyman. Oh, Yeah. He needed oh, to yeah. be relatable. He needed to be flawed. He yes. needed to be a man of principles, but he needed to be the everyman. I loved his performance. Are I we going to talk about
0: the the movie like separately about what we liked about that? Is that going to be a separate section? Yes. Okay, yes. then I will hold my my thoughts on that.
1: That, you know, in fact, that's how we'll end our first part of this episode okay. with sharing our thoughts about the movie. Okay, perfect. So for Quint, Spielberg said that first they wanted Lee Marvin, but mm-hmm. Lee Marvin turned it down. And then their second choice was a man named Sterling Hayden, who oh, I actually yeah. don't even know. But apparently he was somebody who fished and they thought he could be authentic. Oh. And so they, they offered it to him. He turned it down. Mm. Then the Jaws producers, David Brown and Richard Zanuck, suggested Robert Shaw because they had seen and made actually the Sting movie with him. Yes, he's so good in that. Mm, I haven't seen it. Oh,
0: you got to see that one. That's going to be a great... Every time we do something, I'm
1: like, that'd be a great episode. Yeah, that's a good movie. He must have been a really accomplished guy. When you think about the Mm -hmm. fact that he was such a good actor. And have we mentioned already that he was a novelist and a playwright as well? No, we haven't mentioned it yet. Oh, okay. Yes, well. but he
0: was. And we're not positive, but in we we both recall, but did not write down that we think that inside Jaws that they said he was a Pulitzer Prize winner. That's what I recall. But we cannot find any evidence of it just googling or searching his mm-hmm. biography. So don't we, hold us to that one. Don't hold us to that one, but we think maybe. And if you guys can find it, show it to us. But I I think he was very accomplished. Right. Yeah. Which, of course, his son inherited that Genius, right. it sounds like.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the other things that they mentioned that was a challenge with Robert Shaw was the fact that he was in a little bit of trouble with the IRS.
0: Yeah.
1: And so he could only work so many days. If he went over, then he would get in trouble, have to pay some fines. So it mentioned in several articles that on days when he was not filming, they would fly him to Canada oh so that he was out of the country. And That's winning. a lot of money too. Yes. I mean, the expenses skyrocketed. They went so far above budget on this movie, but they would fly him to Canada. Canada so that he would not be counted as, you know, working in the U.S. And I seem to recall from the podcast, check me on this, didn't they mention that he put in the contract that the company would have to pay the expenses if he went over as well? I don't well? remember. Seems like they mentioned that. Okay. We'll have to check it if we do a, a re-listen. Now, they have their leads. They went ahead and went with these three guys. But another problem was that Robert Shaw was a heavy drinker. Yeah. We're going to talk in our next part, a uh, part two, about a couple of specific examples where his drinking came to play mm-hmm. in some of the interactions, some of the shooting that they did. But one thing that it did lead to that we'll mention right now, it, it had a bit of a role in his clash with his co-star Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. Yeah, they, they did not necessarily get along.
0: Mm-hmm. Not at all.
1: Yeah. Do you remember what think from the podcast about that?
0: Well, okay, there's a couple of things. Are you first of all, are you gonna talk about the Mrs. Brody casting controversy like that was mentioned oh, in the podcast? Share that. Okay, so I I cannot again, I did not take notes when I listened to the podcast because I was doing other stuff. But in the podcast Inside Jaws, what they were talking about is that Steven Spielberg was obviously trying to cast this and he had a mentor that he adored. Cannot remember his name. I'm very sorry. The mentor calls him and is like, Hey Steven, my wife is an actress and and you know, you I know you're looking for Mrs. Brody, and she really wants a part, and I kind of promised it to her. And he, and he said, um, "Oh, okay. I think I've got this backwards." His mentor called second, and then I believe the one of the producers called him first and said, "My wife really wants to play it. Hey, I promised it to her. Is that okay?" <laughs> and he said, "Sure." And then his mentor calls, and he's stuck. He's like, "What am I gonna do?" Right? They end up saying for like Airport 74, like add another passenger, make it Airport 75, <laughs> and so the the producer's wife gets that and then the mentor's wife gets Mrs. Brody and that's how we ended up with Mrs. Brody. Don't know if that's true, but that was a very entertaining
1: story. So. And shows a little bit of that
0: insight into yeah. how
1: Hollywood works. Yeah. Where you can, Which she
0: did a great job. I'm sure the other lady good. would have been good too, but yeah, that's yeah. that was that. was that. Now, as far as the other, what did you ask me? The other question was
1: uh, what do I remember about what? Well, they talked in in several articles and also, of course, on the podcast about the conflict between Robert Shaw who played Quint, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Richard Dreyfuss who mm-hmm. played Hooper. And so, Nathan, stand out to you from from those yes what i think i
0: remember is he was just very belligerent with him Mm -hmm. but it also helped their characters now i don't endorse this i don't endorse that kind of behavior but a lot of that animosity came through on the film i believe one of the things i read on imdb said that shaw once expressed i wish i could quit drinking so to the horror of everybody Dreyfus just took his drink and like threw it in the ocean. He's like, there you go. And so <laughs> I, again, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but that's pretty funny. That and, is pretty funny. And I thought one of the most moving things, again, from the podcast Inside Jaws is when Dreyfus was in Ireland many, many years later and Robert Shaw's granddaughter came up and talked to him and he was very kind about mm-hmm. Robert Shaw. So it sort of felt full circle that he was able to just kind of forgive him and what he put him through. But it again don't endorse being mean
1: but they both gave a really really great performance they really did yeah I agree with with what you said I think your point about how they were able to make it work for them Mm -hmm. in terms of actors and their characterization I think that was a really great point it did sound as though Robert was a little bit of the aggressor Mm -hmm. based on I'm making some inferences here guys but based on what I read it sounded like they were both a little bit like their characters Richard Mm -hmm. Dreyfus was a little cocky Mm -hmm. he he was up and coming. Hollywood liked him. He was getting some good roles. He went from this to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And he come and, off American, American Graffiti. Graffiti. Yeah. yeah. So he was, he was a little cocky. A little hot stuff. Yeah. And so Robert Shaw was a little gruff. He I was- wonder if
0: it was part of his, I wonder if Robert Shaw did it on purpose. Do you know what I mean? Because he knew he needed to be this antagonistic person and because he's been in this longer, maybe he's, and again, I am just wild <laughs> in my armchair, flailing my right. arms. I wonder if he thought, well, this cocky little kid, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show him what acting's I'm gonna like. I'm going to bring him down a peg I'm or gonna two. I'm going to bring him down yeah. a peg or two. And I'll, I'll show you what it's like to be on the Hollywood set. Don't know. Yeah. I like that. I like that story better than he was just a mean man. Right. And, you know,
1: how much did the drinking come yeah. into play? Yeah. Who knows?
0: I think in one of the trivia, it said he was a perfect gentleman unless he was drinking. Mm.
1: And there you go. It did talk, though, about how... Robert Shaw would belittle him, would talk to him rudely, mm-hmm. uh, tried to humiliate him. For example, one story that came up several times was that Robert Shaw tried to kind of tease and goad Richard Dreyfus into doing ridiculous things like climbing the ship's mast and jumping from it no. into the sea.
0: No, I'm not. Yeah. No, I don't care.
1: So, You're, so no. So mm-hmm. they would. They pushed at each other. Mm -hmm. They pushed at each other a lot. But again, we're going to talk in our next part two episode about how the screenwriter, Carl Gottlieb, was actually able to use that even as he was working on the script. Ah. So this worked not just for the actors, but it actually worked for the screenwriters as well. Cool. So that brings us, I think, to a good place to kind of pause part one and go ahead and do our armchair psychologist. Actually, I thought maybe we could just share some of our impressions from the beginning of the movie, some of those initial things that struck us. And then we'll save, you know, some of our- um, The meat. The meat, (laughs) yes, for part two. Sound good? Sounds good to me
0: armchair psychologist. Okay. Well, I actually took notes while I was watching it. So the first thing I wrote down is the music makes this. Mm. It's the Mm -hmm. first thing that you hear, John Williams, he did a a phenomenal job. And
1: if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in. You're playing about the music making it. Yes. I want to follow up on that. When John Williams brought the score to Steven Spielberg, he thought it was a joke at first. I I bet that he did because it's so simplistic, you would think, no, no, really. That is exactly right. He thought it was very simplistic. There was a quote from him where he said i expected to hear something kind of weird and melodic something tonal but eerie something of another world almost like outer space under the mm-hmm. water mm-hmm. and what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was da dum mm-hmm. da dum
0: mm-hmm. da
1: dum and at first i began to laugh he had a great sense of humor and i thought he was putting me on then when john williams assured him he was serious He played it a few more times. Steven Spielberg said that's when it clicked. Quote, it suddenly seemed right. Mm -hmm. And John found the signature for the entire movie. And so the composer offered a few of his thoughts about it. Here's what he said. You could alter the speed of this, I don't know what this word means, but ostinato. Oh, I don't know. Any kind of alteration, very slow and very fast, very soft and very loud. There were opportunities to advertise the shark with music. There are also opportunities when we don't have the music and the audience has a sense of absence. They sense the absence because they don't hear the da-dum because you've conditioned them to do that. And he pointed out that that led to some of the biggest scares in the film – such as when the absence of the music cue leaves the viewer shocked when suddenly the shark pops up out of the water. Mm. One last comment from Spielberg was he literally said, I think the score was responsible for half the success of that movie.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I remember this is totally off topic, but I remember that Audrey Hepburn said that when she saw Breakfast at Tiffany's with the score, she said, this is what makes this film. Mm. The Moon River. And it's, it is so essential. Music is so essential. It, it sets a." mood it sets the emotion it sets the tone yes so important this is all going to be very truncated because it's just as I was making notes uh, one thing that I loved about the way Steven Spielberg told this story is I love how he moves the camera in our Mm. opening sequence you see all the teenagers and we start at one end and we move through the teenagers we see everybody's face it's a pan across and then we get to the girl at the very end she's our main character of this particular scene so I Mm -hmm. like how he just shows here's the harmonica player here's how everything's going he does such a good job about setting a scene and yeah. showing you what's going on. And my next point is that that actress really had to sell that first attack. Oh yes yeah, she did. She really did and I know, I don't know if our audience knows but it's fairly well known trivia that they had weights tied to her feet and they were I believe pulling on them and she did not know right at what point they were going to pull on those weights. And I saw on my trivia I was reading on INDB that the way she had that gurgling is she went back and they tilted her head back and they poured water on her mouth to get that you know that kind of noise that is asking a
1: lot from an actress
0: well i'm sure it was it was okay but it was just that adr of that panic.
1: oh my gosh and then what you
0: were saying bringing her dragging her back and forth really scared you when you first saw it it did okay so i'm gonna do a couple more and then we can talk about how we feel about the beginning of it maybe we can save the rest Mm -hmm. for our next part so something else that i thought was super cool is when brody gets that first phone call that's Telling him about her death. Yes. What you notice is that he's talking on the phone. In the background, his kid comes in and he's got blood on his hands. Yes. So the first blood actually happens. Well, the girl. But then we see the blood on the little kid. And I thought that is just so haunting and mm-hmm. so so much
1: of a foreshadow.
0: I love that.
1: You know, that's the thing with Steven Spielberg, that intentionality. Mm-hmm because it's so interesting. Carl Gottlieb, I know we've mentioned him 10 times now, guys, but remember he's the one who wrote the Jaws log that we, mm-hmm. we said was kind of the ultimate source for everything. And of course, he's this one of the screenwriters giving credit for the film. In his interview, he talked about the fact that this was supposed to be a popcorn movie. He used that phrase probably 15 times in different sources or in his interviews. But Steven Spielberg, this was not just a fluff thing for him. Yeah. This was mm-hmm. not just some light fare he was so intentional with everything and that's from, one of the things
0: I yeah. love about Spielberg is that my next point was he does such a good job of showing normal before mm. disaster
1: strikes yes just oh, yes yeah
0: this is the normal and now how are we going to take them outside of their normal and that's one of the reasons I admire him so much as a filmmaker because I know he didn't write this stuff I know he didn't write the movies but it feels like these little bitty moments that I feel like are his signature just add that next level there's a moment where Richard Dreyfus comes to the house and he comes with The wine bottle, two wine bottles, and he sits down and he just says, is anybody going to eat that? And he pulls the plate (laughs) over and he starts eating the food and they all just kind of laugh at him. And it's such a normal thing at the very, I'm skipping ahead because this is part of my point. Later on, when Dreyfus is about to go down into the ocean, Roy Scheider just points at him at his glasses and he takes off his glasses and he puts them in his mouth and he's just fiddling with it Mm -hmm. while he's holding his glasses in his mouth. And I thought that is just such a regular human behavior. I love it. It makes everybody seem so real to me.
1: Which again is why it's so terrifying because you put yourself in it instead mm-hmm. of sitting back thinking I'm watching these people. You are just sucked right into it with them. Yes. Yeah. He is so good at humanizing them. That's a great point. I love your attention to the the technical aspects and how you notice things like camera angles yes. and shots. That's so cool.
0: Well, that's just that's because that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the way that Stephen. We're on a first time basis. <laughs> I'm interested in Steve. The, Steve. Steve. He now. likes to be called. <laughs> I love the way that he makes film, especially early on. I haven't seen a lot of his more recent stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I love his early The Everyman. I love that in both this show and also in Jurassic Park the parts that he, the ones that he did, the first the first two, we know he did those, but especially the first one. That's, everybody knows, That's one of my favorite movies ever. And I love how he liked to cast people that weren't stars. Yes. Because that helped the everyman of it. You could mm-hmm. slip yourself in there and you could see yourself through their eyes. And that's what I did with the little girl with Lex. I was her age. Mm-hmm. I slipped myself right in there. It wasn't Christina Ricci, who I knew. Right. It was Ariana Richards that mm-hmm. I didn't know. I could put myself in her place. Right. So, Candy, give me a little preview. What are we going to talk about in part two? Ooh,
1: we have got a lot of good stuff coming up okay. in part two. You might say this will be the toothier part. <laughs> 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 no, no, really. We're going to talk about all of the script changes. We're okay. going to get into some of the anecdotes. Okay. One super important part is the telling of the USS Indianapolis oh, story. Yes. We're going to get into that. Yes. And then, of course, you and I will share some of our impressions from the latter part of the film and why we think it turned out to be the success that it was. So Mm. lots of great stuff coming up in part two.
0: Very good. So who are you going to cheers today?
1: Well, I think we have to cheer Steven Spielberg, right? I mean, the man that made this happen.
0: And maybe a little bit to Bruce too. He can get (laughs) get a
1: a little tiny cheers, but mostly cheers to Steven. I love it. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, And Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown.
0: All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear, and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe.
1: And while you're there,
0: you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others.
1: As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening a show closed that was called the shark is broken
0: wait say that again did you hear my throat that was gross <laughs>
1: <laughs> i don't know what happened to me
0: the shark inside <laughs> of me was Your like hello so <laughs> okay